0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: Oh, you caught me a little bit by surprise there, Alex. I was pre- doing a little bit of pre-reading over here. Hey, uh, you need a second? No, that's I'm fine, fine. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. Today on This is Hell, there's lots of talk about exactly what is to be done with the police now, that it has finally become obvious to most of the U.S. population that policing is violent potentially deadly, especially for people of color, and is little more than the enforcement of white supremacy and privilege in order to protect the interests of the class they do protect. And the class they protect was evident during protests here in Chicago as the police cordoned off the wealthy area downtown and abandoned the neighborhoods, allowing small businesses to be destroyed while they fortified the richest community with the highest and corporate brand stores. So what do we do with an armed force whose main goal seems to be keeping poor people in check so they don't rise up against the unequal and unfair system that is imposed upon them with the barrel of a gun? We'll try to figure that out when we speak with Max Remo and Netfa Freeman, co-authors of the Black Agenda Report article, Community Control Versus Defunding the Police, A critical analysis, Max is a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, campaign strategist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action. You can find out more about Max at his website, maxremo.com. Netfa is on the Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace and also an organizer in Pan-African Community Action. You can follow Netfa on Twitter at netfafree. Max and Netfa are currently working on an upcoming book on community control over police. And, of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff explores little nightmares. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for the weekend? Now that your family is back, are you going to be celebrating in any way?
2: No, uh, but as a PSA to whoever needs to hear this, and it's probably men out there, uh, if you're in the habit of punching through doors in <laughs> anger, as someone who has uh, both repaired one and paid for one, same door, surprisingly, <laughs> uh,
1: just go for a screen door next time. Yeah, and you can replace a screen with no problem. You can just take it over to Clark Devon, and they'll rescreen your screen with absolutely no problem. So, yeah, I would definitely say punch the screen. So if you're, a, if
2: you're a, an angry door puncher, Yeah, make it a screen one.
1: Yeah, definitely. Also, if you just punch a heavy bag or whatever, you gotta use gloves. I've made the mistake of not using gloves before, and it just splits open all of your knuckles. So, yeah. Angry? Take it out on something that isn't going to cost you money or do you bodily damage. Uh, Or do anybody bodily damage. Let's just keep it at that. This is not the media. This is hell. There are two words that I would have never said, would never have even thought about saying on the show, and fear someone may take those words out of context and get me suspended if not fired. Granted, those two words are really, really racist, and I can't imagine why I would ever say them on the air. I know that saying these two words would not go over well with the student-run executive board at Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, or the intelligentsia at Lumpen Radio, WLPN, where we're also broadcast, or the wisdom of Radio Free Moscow, KRFP. Two words I've no doubt would have got me a call from HR if there was an HR here at This Is Hell. Two words that as recently as the beginning of this week, I would have never dared dared... To say, even on a show called This is Hell These two words have had a lot of power Over the 121 years they have been within the popular lexicon They have stood for the normalizing of oppression The erasing of violent brutality And a literal whitewashing of the ugliest part of U.S. history And its original sin That it never really stopped committing But I feel I can say these two Awful Horrible words, now without any retribution, due to the developments of only the past few days. With so many statues memorializing hate finally being torn down, okay, it's like, what, four out of ten thousand statues, so don't get too excited yet. I finally have the freedom to talk about an icon of slavery that allows you to pour maple syrup out of the head of a likeness of a long-dead slave. That's right, I can finally say here on This Is Hell without any worry of being punished or persecuted in any way, I can say, Aunt Jemima. Now, I have no idea why I would have ever mentioned Aunt Jemima maple syrup before, other than to say it's an incredibly offensive package and awful, awful maple syrup. It it really isn't maple syrup. You gotta look at the ingredients to that crap. It's not even close to being maple syrup. It's mostly corn syrup. I always wondered why that anachronism still remained on store shelves, and I also wondered what it would take to get Aunt Jemima off the store shelves. Lynchings couldn't get a celebration of slavery off the shelves, so what would finally stop PepsiCo from selling an image of slavery? Despite the fact that the news originally reported the brand was owned by Quaker Oats, and I think they're still saying that on Fox News in some weird attempt to obfuscate Pepsi's ownership of Quaker Oats, that's right. Pepsi, Pepsi, which is probably a big advertiser, owns Aunt, <coughs> owns Aunt Jemima, which is a phrase that sounds even worse now that I said it. Pepsi owns Aunt Jemima. So what could possibly stop Pepsi, the worst, the worst of all the colas, from making Aunt Jemima maple syrup? The worst, the worst of all the maple syrups. If not the racial persecution that she has been observing from store shelves since Auntie was first put there in 1889. And yes, Aunt Jemima was a slave. The figure was based on a real, live former slave named Nancy Green, who worked as a representative of the brand until 1923, nearly 35 years of promoting syrup that embraces the image of the happy, friendly, matronly servant from the race that the brand clearly believes should be serving white people. So what did it take Pepsi to end Aunt Jemima as a brand of syrup? Keeping in mind Pepsi's record on cultural sensitivity, like Pepsi's The Choice of a New Generation ad campaign, which when translated for the Chinese market, created signs all over the country that read Pepsi will bring your ancestors back from the dead. It's really not surprising it took them so long to take Aunt Jemima, free him, free her from the shelves of stores around the United States. What it took for Pepsi to finally end the racist brand was a police officer with three other cops standing by choking a black man who was begging for his life, saying that he cannot breathe, and doing so for 8 minutes and 46 seconds on video. It took the recorded and very lengthy murder of George Floyd to finally end the Aunt Jemima brand. Lynchings across the U.S., the rebirth of the KKK, police letting loose attack dogs on civil rights activists, the murder of Martin Luther King, uh, the old Jim Crow, the new Jim Crow, and so much more. And their Aunt Jemima sat on store shelves smiling, telling us it's all okay, erasing the horrors of the worst part of U.S. history. The institution that has had the greatest impact and has been the greatest detriment to the United States, aside from the purposeful genocide of the indigenous. And if it took this long to get Aunt Jemima out of stores, imagine how long it's going to take to free that Native American woman from her Lando Lakes Butterbox prison. Now, the racist images on Uncle Ben's rice, as well as Aunt Jemima's knockoff, Mrs. Butterworth, and that cook on the cream of wheat box, they're all being threatened as well. By the way, is it just me or are all these brands only consumed by really old white people with bad taste and horrible, awful diets? Even the last Sambo's restaurant finally closed. And yes, the menu still had references to the very racist child story of Little Black Sambo, a story I will not relate to you here on air because when my mother read it to me as a child, I remember it really scared me, it really freaked me out, and it made me cry uncontrollably. But I cried uncontrollably a lot when I was a kid. The world really scared the hell out of me as I was being introduced to all of its frightening images. Despite the centuries of racial persecution, racialized violence by police, violence by white people against black people without any impunity or fear of legal repercussions, Despite all of that, they kept selling the image of a happy slave to join you every morning at the breakfast table, reminding you, hey, it wasn't as bad as all that. There's only one place where slavery could be packaged, where white supremacy could be institutionalized through marketing, where white privilege can become a foundation of daily life through advertising. And that place is all around us because this is... Is hell coming up on this? Is hell? What's next for policing during the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin? Jeff explores little nightmares and more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at Patreon.com/slash. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. There's a lot of talk about defunding the police and other alternatives to what we currently have when it comes to police. I mean, sure, defunding sounds great, but what would it mean in practice? What might the repercussions be that we are not necessarily considering in this momentous time? Here to help us understand, Max Rameau and Netfa Freeman are co-authors of the Black Agenda Report article, Community Control Versus Defunding the Police, a Critical Analysis. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Max. Thank you so much for having me. Max is a Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, campaign strategist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action, or PACA. Welcome to This Is Hell, Netfa. Thank you. Thank you for having us. NETFA is on the Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace and also an organizer in Pan-African Community Action. You can follow NETFA on Twitter at NETFA Free. Max and NETFA are currently working on an upcoming book on community control over the police. Max, let's start with you and a story that broke this week. As the Washington uh, Post reported, More than 50 liberal groups signed a letter Monday to presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden criticizing his response to the emerging protest against police brutality, warning that failing to embrace a more aggressive agenda risks alienating the African-American voters he needs to win the election. The letter pointed to Biden's recent promise to... Not defund the police, but add $300 million for community policing programs, a plan that activists say would undermine their efforts to push for systemic changes such as defunding the police. So, Max, the two of you uh, have your criticisms of defunding, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, Max, is uh, Biden's being opposed to defunding? Uh, what does that tell you about the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party when it comes to addressing the problems with police when he doesn't want to defund the police, but instead he wants to give $300 million into policing programs?
3: Yeah, that's $300 million extra. That's in addition to what they already get, which is a... a... Uh, a disproportionate amount of local and state uh, budgets but uh yeah i i uh, this is no surprise of course i'm not surprised at, at all to hear biden's position i'll be very surprised in fact if his position were different uh the democratic party uh represents uh one uh side of the um uh, of the corporate Uh, interests uh, of this country and the Republican Party represents uh, another. There was um, an African liberation leader who once said, uh, when he was criticized for only having one political party in his country, said, well, the United States also only has one political party, but in typical U.S. opulence, it has two of them. So uh, the, the, as far as it relates to police uh, and policing and the way that this society is controlled through those mechanisms, then there's really not a significant difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So this is not a surprise, and, uh, uh, and we don't expect anything different. I think that's why we need to look to the people who are protesting to figure out what changes are going to be made, not to look to the top of the ticket of either political party. That quote
1: was fantastic, Max. I openly laughed over here. So, Netfa, uh, uh, you and Max write that the intensity and scope of the mass rebellion that has gripped the U.S. and expanded internationally has shaken global white supremacist capitalist patriarchy to its knees. In a lot of the corporate establishment media, Netfa, there has been a scripted sense of surprise about the protests also taking place overseas. And reporting is often framed within the protests being about George Floyd, about even anger in New Zealand over U.S. police violence. What is missed when all the protests around the world are not seen as protests against specifically police violence? The, when they are seen, I should say, as the specific insta- instance of killing of George Floyd. What does the media miss, in your opinion, when they do not see the protests around the world more generally as being opposed to white supremacy and global institutional racism?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the media misses a lot. In fact, the media is so responsible for buttressing the images of the police and how people are regarding the police. And when I think of the media, I think of more than just the news media, but it's also the cop shows on television, uh, all kind of things Mm that um, that uh, make people believe that these are benevolent forces. Um, And there's a I mean, the question you ask is so large, there's a whole lot they're missing. One is that uh, I think of is back in after Trayvon Martin was killed by what we probably would say is a vigilante, the Malcolm X Grassroots movement did a report, um, and I think it was no, called No More Trayvon Martins. It was a part of a campaign, No More Trayvon Martins campaign, and it, and it, uh, and it did a whole lot of compiling statistics and found that um, actually on the average, every, every 28 hours, a black person in this country is killed by a vigilante, a police officer, or a security guard every 28 hours. So every time that we are seeing uh, the 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 populace, um, whether domestically or internationally, getting enraged about what's happening, we're only seeing a very small microcosm of the people. I um, mean, in fact, people are... Um, and, and when we sing it in the news, and the news never really reports that, they don't report the, the frequency of this, and that they will always sensationalize and in, um, make everything about an individual, they'll make it part uh, about an event that's happened, they'll confine it to uh, improper use of force or things like that, never dealing with white supremacy and, and capitalism, in fact, so the, the function, the essential function of the police and what they, the purpose that they serve. And so um, there's a lot there. And then I would also add that they don't make it a global phenomenon. And so that the police and the militarized police in particular, all of them are doing the exact same, serving the exact same purpose as the US military around the world in which they're using uh, you know, the use of force to control and, and expand its hege- hegemony around the world. I mean, it's the same essential purpose Um, We in the United States in pocket, we say that we're a domestic colony, that African people are a domestic colony. The issue is not racism, but it's the fact that we are colonized, that we serve uh, the wants and needs of the the metropole, so to speak, or the dominant power, the ruling class. And to the extent that neoliberalism uh, makes those uh, needs sort of outdates those needs and makes so many of us an expendable population. And so, um, and it's, uh, so, in response to that, we'll see the tightening of the, or the mass incarceration, the intensification and and frustrations of other populations uh, considering uh, African people or even immigrants a problem um, then and their responses are, are violent responses. And so none of these things are put into perspective by the media, even in particularly the history and purpose of police. And so we like for example, them, Uh, coming out of the slave patrols um, and to catch one or eight slaves and put down insurrections and also the private security agencies in the north maybe almost 100 years later where they protected the property of the owners and the capitalist class um, and put down strikes and those kind of things. Those are important historical contexts that I think that the news media in particular, but in media in general, uh, should be obligated to, to fill in the blanks, but they don't do that.
1: And Max, I want to follow up on something that Netfa said. He was saying that uh, black communities are colonized communities. How do we better understand the relationship between black communities and the police? How do we better understand that relationship when we understand black communities as being colonized?
3: So if we think about traditional colonies, which is a metropole or a mother country far away from uh, the colony itself, the purpose of the colony is to serve the needs or the wants of the metropole, and it is subjugated in order to do so. And the way that subjugated is ma- subjugation is maintained, you know, of course, no one wants to be colonized, no one signed up for the, uh, to be on the colonized list. Uh, the way it's done is through an occupying army, through a kind of a military force. Well, in the United States, black communities are oppressed. Our cheap labor is used uh, in a number of ways, including undermining uh, labor costs uh, for uh uh, for unionized or or or, or other white workers Uh, and of course that only happens when we don't have full access to uh uh, to jobs uh and we're dumping ground for things like rotten meat and used clothes and all kinds of other things like that so and as well as toxic waste so how is that maintained how are how is it that black people are Tolerating those kind of conditions, well, there's only one way, and that is through an occupying army this one we call the police. so the way that we understand the relationship is that we have a uh, economic system and a social system economic system being capitalism and the social system being the combination of white supremacy and patriarchy uh, that uh that uh, contains and oppresses communities and maintains certain social relations uh, inside, of this, uh, inside of this society. So the job of the police then is to enforce those things that keep the ruling class as the ruling class. And once we understand that, then that makes it and to get, again, identical the exact same relationship that exists inside of a traditional colony. Once we understand that, then we can see, okay, this is the function police play And in that respect they cannot be reformed not they can't be reformed because the the individual police officers are evil but they can't be reformed because their job fundamentally is to maintain an inherently exploitative relationship between the uh, colonizers and the colonized and that process can't be reformed the only thing that can happen is that we can end the colonial relationship that's the only good that can happen and that can only happen when the police are Uh, what we now know as police, are no longer allowed to patrol the streets of those communities that they're uh, assigned to control.
1: And that is an amazing insight that everybody should be embracing. Uh, The two of you also write that the people have tasted a real sense of their own power, and as a result, some very unexpected developments have emerged. Netfa, yes, these have been unexpected, especially development of defunding the police, which you write about, and we will discuss in a moment, I promise. But let's just focus on something that the media seems to be focusing on. It was on the front page of yesterday's New York Times. It seems like all of the more corporate news media is focusing on it. To what extent are a few of the countless symbols of white supremacy being toppled, A, a few cops being charged Without any institutional change, how important are these kinds of symbolic and one-off here and one-off there actions in toppling white supremacy itself, Netva?
0: Mm. Well, I mean, I think they're important. And in, in, if we were to talk about you know what happens in in, in other real revolutions, these kind of things uh, happen in rev- revolutions. People uh, address the symbols of their oppression, the symbols of their colonization. And the, and it's um, very important, one, to, to replace them with other symbols that represent the opposite, that represent our resistance and the liberal, liberation. So I think in the sense that they're important for people to, to uh, keep up the intensity of the movement um, and to build. They're not enough. Um, but there's also a flip side that I think could be... Um, detrimental to the movement in some senses, because as we see the the different uh, states uh, complying with these things, they can let off steam or make people focus on the wrong aspects of what kind of fundamental change needs to take place. Um, Because when we talk about systems, and often you're even hearing in the the media, uh, systemic change is needed, even people who actually represent the system, but the system is not named. The system, we don't, you know, we're saying uh, capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, but they don't say that. So the system becomes this obscure, elusive thing um, that actually is is almost made synonymous with reforms. And so these types of things can be can reduce the movement to reforms and have people believe they're winning without us honing in on a more uh, constructive and more formidable transformation and shift in power. So they don't deal with power they don't deal with the essential conditions of people. You can take a statue down but that's not going to feed the people who are, are hungry um, and so and, and a lot of times these kind of things will intensify not. They will, not a lot of times, um, and raise that uh, part of the population that feels that they are being uh, displaced or replaced, um, that their power is, is, you know, being challenged um, in a very simplistic way. So we have to have something that's more substantial um, and that it's not about also, it's not about anything that the powers that be do for us, but it's about shifting power to those of us who have been dispossessed and, and um. And colonized, and so I think there's a double-edged, double-edged kind of thing that we have to to look at with that. And I want to add something to my last thing about that. Your first question in terms of the media, um, that uh, we often hear the media, and they're reporting, they're repeating. Um, reports from the police uh, and the police stations when something happens as if it's facts. They often take the press releases and they talk about it. They're, a lot of times they would say allegedly and any other thing. So, for example, uh, police officers don't really shoot people. They're merely involved in shootings. And they don't, um, they never report that people are victims like George Floyd or Eric Garner or anything. They are suspects, uh, suspects fleeing, those kind of things, um, which, you know, I just wanted to I just thought of that in the tail end of that question and I wanted to get that in there
1: yeah that makes that's the perfect that's the way that they uh, always frame these kinds of shootings and it's really infuriating because they are definitely selling a narrative even though it's they're trying to sound like they're being objective when in no way are they being objective Max you and Netfa write that among the unexpected developments is the demand to defund the police which is even being uh, acknowledged by some lawmakers in a few jurisdictions to be clear this is a Momentous development for the movement. Max, I want to ask you about that aspect of the movement because it's something we've been talking about a lot here on the show, even before uh, this year, for the last several years. Momentous, unexpected. Was this a demand by law enforcement act- activists, this defunding of police, prior to the protests following the murder of George Floyd? Because it makes me. Consider the idea that many guests have expressed, which is going into a protest, an uprising, a revolution. You really have no idea where it will take you. So you do not need a PowerPoint presentation of your demands and step-by-step process to get to liberation and freedom, which is always expected from the media, demanded from the media. And when it is not supplied, every uprising is immediately dismissed as not offering a clear alternative is this defunding of the police this kind of evolution in process of a revolution?
3: Yes, I think it is. I think if this is a if you think about where we were five years ago or so when Mike Brown was murdered uh, by the police in Ferguson, Missouri, there was a it was immediately followed by an uprising there uh, as well. Uh, Mike Brown was murdered. Uh, there was an uprising then the social justice movement went on mass to Ferguson and to St. Louis and, and other places. And then that was shortly followed by a, a smaller, but uh, significant uprising in Baltimore. Uh, you had these uprising and the, what were the demands that came out of those uprisings? Uh, and we really had two major ones. One was that elected officials and the police say the words black lives matter, which was an incredible cultural flashpoint, and and symbol, but it wasn't really a demand, uh, even though people were trying to frame it that way. And the other was that the police wear body cameras. And the effect of that was that the police can now videotape us basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Uh, which was, even then, some of us recognized that this was not a good demand. Uh, But that's where it was, it was all around very simple reforms, some of them not even clear how they were formed, some of them were were actual backwards moves. Five years later, there are people who are calling for a defunding of the police to zero. This is a major leap to happen inside of a lifetime, much less inside of five years. And I think it just shows how quickly uh, things are are going in terms of the way people are thinking about the police, uh, thinking that they can be cured with a body camera, uh, and with the slogan to go into things, there's no way to cure them, they should be zeroed out. So this is a significant development. That, now, that doesn't mean that the evolution is over. That doesn't mean that we're done with the evolution. Uh, but it does mean that this was a really, really a significant move. And I think if we're talking about uh, what revolutionary change could potentially look like, I'm really interested in seeing where we are, where we're going to be in the next evolution in four or five more years.
1: Netfa, you and Matt. Go, Go ahead. Go ahead, Netfa.
3: Uh, well,
0: just add, just to add to that, I, I concur exactly with what Max said. But then also, there was something in your question that made me think about it. It was, um, it was a, an analogy of the, the the media. People are expected to have everything a sort of a strategy or thing planned out when these things happen. Right. But I think it is incumbent on our movement, the most the most uh, forces that are most conscientious about what we're doing, to sort of have that and also to look to history uh, uh, for like a what we call the. Uh, historical materialist approach, if we do that, then we find that even community, con- well, I'm kind of maybe jumping ahead, <laughs> but uh, community control over police <laughs> has a, you know, in other words, looking ba- back at what our people did before us and sort of understanding where that track comes you know, comes leading up to now. And so there are some ebbs and flows and sometimes re- regress, digressions that, that we have to catch back up to where we are. But I agree with Max that we're, we're getting there. And this is a, a reflection on that.
1: So, Nefta, you you and uh, Max write that any time there is private property and wealth in a society, there will be a few with wealth and many more without. In those societies, the police must exist in order to protect property and wealth from those who do not have it. So, Netfa, it's easy. It's simple. All we have to do is end that dynamic. All we have to do is get rid of private property and wealth problem solved, right? So as long as we have private property and wealth, will we have police and not only police, but racist police who use deadly violence disproportionately on people of color and the poor? Is that going to continue as long as we have private, private property and wealth?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely a must that it must continue um, because I mean, when we talk about private property and the concentration of wealth, in order for that system to be protected, they need a force. And I think uh, Max um, talked about this earlier. Uh, they need a force to protect that that, that paradigm, that dynamic. Um, so even if uh, uh, even if we were to, to defund the police, um, and I think that even. Uh, we have to talk about what exactly that means because people could argue that that the complete defunding of it to the point of abolition, and we're only talking about the public aspect of uh, the police, or even reduction in a budget, and a d- reduction in budget. Which, in fact, even if you if you did it by fifty percent, <laughs> in the, in the article we say it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, it would make the the U.S., which is the the uh, the <clears throat> the champions. Of overfunding and mass incarceration and militarization of their police, it would just make them one of the most more violent and repressive, uh, instead of the most violent and repressive system. But um, if if we um, even if we abolish that, <clears throat> excuse me. And then the powers that be would not just sit back and allow that to happen and in fact it's it's uh, goes into uh, it leads into a, a paradigm a trajectory that neoliberalism austerity and privatization is is taking the the society anyway a lot of things are being privatized but the original formations of the police were private uh, were, were privately uh Controlled institutions, privately formed and established institutions, the slave patrols and the, and the private security companies. Um, and so, while after uh, realizing that they could actually shift this burden on to the public, it also helped us to have some nominal um, accountabilities or controls, rather, uh, on the police that the public have some uh, versus them all only being accountable to, to their private uh, their controllers or high or bosses. Um, and so if we actually took away that public thing, then they would just revert back to the original, uh, the original formations and the original paradigm in which we actually see uh, some of that happening uh, now, with a whole lot of, you know, even in, uh, internationally, mercenary armies. Um, there's private police in the United States, uh, what we call special police, where pe- where they're police that have almost all the rights in different jurisdictions. It depends on different jur- jurisdictions, all the rights and res- uh, all the rights and abilities and privileges of police, even carrying guns and being able to use deadly force and whatnot. Um, but in fact, are even less accountable. Than regular police because uh, they don't have to even give the names of if of an officer, one of their officers, kills somebody or is involved in any type of discrepancy or, or, or uh, judicial uh, allegations, their names don't have to be disclosed. I mean, so there's a, a paradigm here that should help us understand that that's not enough to uh, to abolish the police. Um, Uh, that, uh, and then as long as private property and those kind of things exist, those, the ruling class will find some way and has to find some way to protect its situation, its disposition in the society.
1: I found that part of your writing fascinating, that it's kind of neoliberalism in reverse. It was a privatized force that then became public as here during the age of neoliberalism, it's often a public good that's turned into a private good. And Max, we were talking earlier about uh, viewing the black community as something that is being colonized and better understanding of the black community and the relationship with police by seeing it as a colonized community. And for people to understand the shortcomings of defunding, you write that while protection for the ruling class looks different today than it did in previous eras, the fundamental function of what we now call the police remains the same to protect the interests and enforce the will of the ruling class. Class antagonisms or tension between two or more classes necessitates some form of police. For us to understand the shortcomings of defunding, we have to understand that they are the class police. What would you say to someone, Max, who argues the police are not the class police, they are the crime police, that their mission is to stop crime and hold those accountable for committing crimes? How is fighting crime a class project?
3: So, I, I first of all, I think that 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 um, description that police or the crime police could be accurate. Uh, the but then that goes back to that gets kicked back up to the original premise, uh, the where the police's job is to serve the interests of the ruling class. So, and the ruling class then is the one who determines what is a crime and what is not a crime you know there's an old saying in the movement that the law is just the majority of opinion of the ruling class uh so um uh uh, in a real way crime is a social construct and there's something that is illegal today that was legal a few weeks ago or a few months ago or a few years ago uh there are places where for example uh, recreational use of marijuana is legal. So if you are walking around with, uh, marijuana in your hand or in your pocket, you're doing nothing wrong. But if you accidentally cross a border for which there's no clear line, it's just a artificially created human created border. Uh, if you cross that line, then suddenly you're breaking the law. Well, you're doing the same thing you were doing 10 feet ago, but now you are breaking the law, uh, because it is just a construct of those who are in power. But let me give a more specific example of how this would actually be the case. So if I were to go into Walmart and steal $20 or something worth $20, the police would come, they would tackle me, potentially tase me, arrest me. I'd go to trial uh, and I could face jail time for stealing $20 out of there. However, if Walmart were to hire me and I would work 40 hours a week, but Walmart would only pay me for 39 and they would steal $10 an hour from me or $12 an hour from from me or whatever the amount that I was actually making per hour, uh, no one, and they were caught and I hire a lawyer and no one would go to jail for that because stealing $20 from a company is a criminal offense, but wage labor, stealing wages from a worker is a civil offense. It is not a criminal offense. No one can go to prison in most states. There are a few states where this is not the case, but most uh, but no one can go to go to prison even if they intentionally steal thousands of dollars from someone who is working for a multi-billion dollar company. Wage labor is not a crime. And that just demonstrates that this idea of what crime is is a social construct. And if Um, we had a different group of people in charge, different group of people ruling with different interests, if the working class uh, people were the ones who were actually in charge, then I suspect that those two things would be turned around. And the police would still have the same function in society, the same broader function, which is to serve the uh, interests or the needs or the wants of those who are in charge. But when we change who is in charge, then suddenly stealing hundreds and thousand dollars from a a working class or poor person carries a different weight than stealing $20 from a multi-billion dollar uh, multinational corporation. Uh, And really what makes one a crime and one a civil dispute is determined by who's in charge, not whether or not it's right or wrong. We need to change who's in charge, not just change who the individual police are or the individual police departments.
1: Uh, even before I ask Netfa the next question, I just want to say that so I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. This is just, I, mean, I just want to thank you guys. Just, I'm sorry. Uh, so Netfa, you, you. you and Max write that if police are the consequence of wealth, then defunding will not abolish them. It will only compel the ruling class to reconstitute their protective force in a new formation because class antagonisms necessitate some form of police defunding what we now call police might result in the demise of the armed and uniformed government force we have come to know, but it will not end the need of the ruling class to hire its own protective and enforcement group. So, Netfa, will that be any better? Will less funding for public police, will a growth in private policing, will that be any better or worse for people of color and being targeted with deadly force by, in this case, privatized instead of public class security?
0: Um. There's no indicate. I do need to make a correction. I forgot this at the at the top of the show. Um, and it's in the some things that we we kind of are responsible for this um, mis misleading situation in the article we write. The in our upcoming book. Um, but I'm not the co author of the book. Max is a, is writer of the book. Okay. So I wanted to clear that up, and we we, we didn't we didn't make that clear in the article, so people are are. Uh, crediting me as being co-author with this book with Max, we just did the article together. But um, t- your the answer to your question is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, we would suspect no. I um, mean because um, because the um, the kind of uh, accountabilities and controls, at least the the type of influence that the public can wage or level against. Uh, agents of the state, and that's not power, but it's agents of the state or like the politicians and the policymakers and the legislators. Um, we have much more advantage there. Um, um, and so if, if police would become private, um, it definitely would not resolve any of the contradictions that you mentioned, uh, racialized police or, or uh, brutality or anything like that. In fact, there is a danger that they could become uh, worse, because now we're talking about full-out mercenaries um, that are not accountable to anyone but the bosses and even what they uh, what they enforce um, like actually max just, just started describing would only be what the bosses tell them to enforce what is a why violation against uh, against them as people who are trying to maintain and, and secure uh, keep secure their wealth and their and their privilege in, in the society um, and so, yeah, there there's a lot of indication that this might that this wouldn't happen, and what we really need is a shift in power, uh, so that we are able to make the kind of decisions over what now is a publicly funded institution, and a way that we can refashion it uh, democratically, refashion it and refund it, and do whatever we want uh, as a people um, for it to serve our needs. Other than that, then it would only be shifting the um, what now has become a public institution into the hands of some very uh, nefarious uh, individuals who are or, who not individuals a class a group that is, is that is actually going down a road of of uh, a neoliberalism which is uh, very unsustainable and in their desperation to to sustain that we'll see an increase in in violence and in, and in, uh, in incarceration or. or uh, Arrests and those kind of things, uh, because the people will become more desperate, and that the, you know a lot of things will happen in the desperation of austerity and neoliberalism, and their response will invariably to be repression and and fascism.
1: Max, one of the things that they're always talking about, I know this sounds a little bit off base, but one of the things they're always talking about when it comes to an alternative fuel source is natural gas is just a bridge fuel to the next alternative wind or solar. Meanwhile, natural gas is a fossil fuel that when you actually take it out of the ground, it's one of the most polluting processes in the entire world when it comes to any type of resource exploitation. I was thinking about that when it comes to defunding the police, is defunding the police at least a bridge to abolishing the police or is it a reentrenchment of white supremacy within the police
3: so it could be a bridge there uh we don't know yet uh but uh it could also not be the problem is uh that we that defund by itself does not lay out a plan for getting us there and we think about what the Uh, the way we understand and evaluate social movements, we think about social movements in terms of of what their vision was for an alternate society, an alternate world, and the extent to which they were uh, able to achieve that vision. Defunding, if if we assume for a moment that it's all successful, what it does is it defunds the police and and would presumably uh, eliminate them as a formal, certainly as a state institution. But it doesn't speak to what happens next. And if we don't have that plan in place now, then it is obvious what happens next. It will give rise to these private police forces, these private security forces that we think would behave in a manner that's way worse than the existing police. Now, there's no reason why um, these police forces would, w- would wear badges or would wear name tags. They would just go around doing uh, the most extreme uh, 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 damage. So it could be a bridge if that's the plan and we have a way of executing that plan. Uh, but if that's if there is no plan around it, if it merely is to defund, and there's no reason to think that if we were able to defund and and abolish the police on Sunday, that Walmart would not have its own private police force in full effect, enforcing its own rules, not the law, but enforcing its own rules on Monday. And so, if we don't have a plan to account for that, uh, then it really does just become a bridge to. Uh, uh, to a police force that doesn't even have to pretend to be, uh, enforcing objective laws. It can just, uh, uh, enforce the specific rules that the, uh, that the rules, the owners give it. So what the, what we're really talking about here is not what funding levels are of the police, That's not we don't we don't need to do all of the incredible things that people are doing now just to fight over funding levels. Uh, We're not talking about just getting rid of an institution without thinking about what it's replacing. What we really need to be talking about is shifting power. Who is in control of those institutions that are impacting our lives, who's in control of those institutions that are making our lives better or are making our lives, uh, worse. And then how do we, and then how do we exercise that control? Those are the fundamental questions that we should be answering. Now, if all we're doing is reducing funding from police and putting funding in other areas like housing and social services, then, um, Uh, We might end up in a situation very similar to where we were in the late 1960s and early 1970s, before the era of mass incarceration began, where the police budgets were nowhere near what they are today. In fact, they've grown incredibly since then. People talk about the big shift happening in the early and and mid-1970s, that to be the big shift in incarceration and in funding the police. But black people were not happy about the way the police treated us in the 1960s and the 1970s. So if that's all we're doing is rolling back the clock to those, to those pre-19, uh, the, the pre-mass incarceration funding levels, then we're not going to be too happy about the way uh, things turn out there either. Uh, so the real question, again, is not what the marginal funding levels are. It's not uh, about getting rid of an institution without thinking about replacing it. it's really is who's in charge, who's in power. We need to be thinking about and fighting for power.
1: So, Netfa, let's talk about getting that power. You write, as such, the um, – sorry, I'm trying to get the, the – with uh, the – Pan African Community Associ- uh, Action. Pan African Community Action started our own community control over police campaign, and in 2019, we traveled to Chicago to participate in the founding meeting of the National Alliance Against Racists and Political Repression, which was has launched a national campaign for community control over police. We assert that community control over police must be the central demand of this moment, even as we embrace the possibility that this demand could give way for a revolutionary movement what do you mean by community control over police? How is that? Who has that control over police right now that you would like to take that control away from and give to the community?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, right now, the, the police as a state institution who has control over who people, the, the, I say people, but the forces who have who control the government and everyone, uh, support, pretty much working class people agree that the rich and the ruling uh, elite pretty much get their way when it comes to the government. So the, the, the rulers are what dictate uh, what happens with the state, and the state, and they, they have the, the money to, to pay politicians to win their campaigns. In fact, if you can't get um, influence or, or support from the ruling class, then you cannot be in a lot of these offices, particularly the higher up that you go. So that's who controls the police. Um, and so what we're talking about is shifting that power in a way that we would organize, the people have to be organized in order for us to exercise any kind of control over institution of this way. And then also community control in general is what we're fighting for. But we also know that one of those institutions that we need to control are the institutions around, uh, you know, the, these institutions of what's, c- what's claimed to be public safety. And so we would organize in every uh, and like, for example, in Washington D.C., we're advocating that districts or wards uh, be given there be a ballot initiative that each district or ward be given the opportunity to vote for whether they want to take the keep the current police uh, in their district or or have control, assume control over those over that um, over that force. And in doing so, if they vote to to keep their M.P.D. or the Metropolitan Police department Force then they then that's that community gets to do that and they have that um, but if they in fact vote um, to take control of the police then we would have to implement certain and we would probably be doing it that's part of the organizing of it um, certain uh, structures in order to uh, to to manage the control over the police to decide what type of formation that we want this to be, to hire police officers, make the qualifications, who is a, a police, if we want to call them that anymore. Um, and so that would be, that would include mass assemblies. But then also the key component is a civilian community control board. A civilian community control board over the police, not a review board. And not a, we want to also, we, we usually have run into problems making a distinction between community policing um, and community review boards and things like that, and community control over the police. the The former policing, community policing, and review boards don't have any real power. at most. They review problems after that they happen and make recommendations that are not even binding. Uh, and but the and then community policing is a whole another PR thing where they're really pretty much working with the institutions of police as we know them today. Uh, to you know to inform on their neighbors and have chummy relationships and all that but not really dealing with anything around power or the the uh, dispositions of of the police and for community control of the police we would have a control board that are made up with two uh, essential parts one that deals with priorities and uh, policies of the police and then the other board um, would be the day-to-day running of, of actually managing the police but um, this would be one board but it would be you know, have two different wings to it, um, and those would be uh, staffed, or 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 the position would be held by people from the community. If you and we can make the the people's uh, organized, like people's assemblies, would would decide those uh, qualifications, and we would debate over it and whatnot. And everybody in this, and we're advocating that it be. Uh, a rotating body of randomly selected individuals from the community, not elected individuals because we, we found in this system, the elections are uh, can be uh, co-opted very easily by muddied interests and other interests. Um, but we say randomly selected, much like a jury uh, jury duty, and then people would uh, serve their term on there where they would, fund, where they would uh, uh, deal with these aspects of community control of the police and they would be informed with from mandates and 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 things from the from the people of the community.
1: We have been speaking with Maximo and Netfa Freeman. They are co-authors of the Black Agenda Report article Community Control versus Defunding the Police. I've got one last question for each of you, and it's what we do with all of our guests. It's the way we finish all of our interviews. Our final question is called The Question from Hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I have one for each of you. First, Max you write how this community control over police could be a revolutionary movement beyond policing even how might it be a revolutionary movement that isn't just confined within law enforcement and criminal justice having an impact on everything even beyond the carceral state here's my real question from hell for you max could this be a revolutionary movement that could even benefit white racists
3: well, yes, it can benefit uh, white racists, and it will, because uh, people who uh, are uh, racially prejudiced and who oppress other human beings are, because they're spending their time and their energy and their uh, uh, and their time here on this earth, uh, oppressing others rather than developing themselves. They're not able to live their lives fully as a human being, and as Paulo Freire said in his great book uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, is, uh, oppressed people must end oppression in order to free ourselves. Damn. And we will also in the process, free our oppressors from, uh, their inhumane, their own inhumane ways. They're not able to realize their own humanity because they're behaving in such an inhumane way. And we have to protect them from that. So, uh, yes, ending uh, systems of white supremacy ending uh, will will save white racists. Ending systems of patriarchy will save patriarchal men, uh, and ending systems of capitalism will save uh, people who have no regard for the planet and for their uh, their fellow human beings. Uh, that's yes, of, this will this will solve those 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 problems.
1: One of my favorite answers to the question from Helen, a very long time Netfa, does an inability to see defunding the police leading to privatized police reveal to you any lack of awareness that the police are actually the class police that defunders still believe cops fight crime, not class.
0: Um, no, I mean, I think because a lot of the, the proponents of defund the police are abolitionists, actually, and they actually say they, they advocate for the eventual abolishing of police. Um, and so we're not really in disagreement with that. And they actually seem to, to concur with a lot of the things that we're saying. I think where the difference is, is how do we get to, and I think Max explained it well, so how do we get from here to there? And they believe while defunding the police is on the road to abolition, we believe that the only real abolition can happen is you can't buy something you can't control. And then once we control it, we can re-fashion it and re-envision it to the point where it is so unrecognizable to what we now know the police, then we would, then that effectively is the abolition of police.
1: Well, I really want to thank both of you for being on the show this week. This has been a fascinating and very enlightening conversation. Max Ramo and Netfa Freeman, co-authors of the Black Agenda Report article, Community Control vs. Defunding the Police. And if you want to find out more about community control, just go to the website of Pan-African Community Action, and that website is pacapower.org. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up during the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Jeff explores little nightmares. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, whatever host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Mel is, what are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? Our favorite answer to this week's question, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which we, you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Mel following Jeff in just a few minutes. On Patreon tomorrow... Alex, I think we are playing an Aaron Dottie Roy interview. Our first interview with Aaron Dottie Roy from, I believe, 2010, but we're still trying to find that within it's our somewhere ur-
2: between 2010 and 2015. So uh, that's what I'm doing this afternoon is digging through the trying to, to try find to find the-, the first time we talked to Aaron Dottie Roy.
1: <laughs> yes, and so that's what we're going to be playing on tomorrow's Patreon uh, podcast, and it's really an exceptional interview in which I am told by Aaron Dottie that. I almost got her killed by asking a certain question. On Patreon tomorrow, we will have a warning for everyone about going on vacation this summer who may be going to areas that are far more lily-white than where they reside the rest of the year. And if you are going to such whiteness, you better be prepared because white people are getting scarier and scarier as they get more frightened about mobs of fictional Antifa members marching down their streets and looting their towns. So when you go to the local Walmart to get provisions while wearing your face mask to keep everyone safe, prepare yourself... But because frightened Whitey thinks that mask means You have come to take away their guns And institute Soviet communism Yes, be very very careful on vacation this year Because Whitey is having a hissy fit About their thoroughly undeserved supremacy And privilege finally being challenged But you can only hear our interview With Arundhati Roy and my summer vacation Warning about white people if you subscribe To Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell On Patreon at patreon.com Slash this is hell Coming up during the moment of truth Like I said, Jeff Explore his little nightmares We'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell And announce this week's winner And find out what's happening on next week's show Keep in mind a lot of the questions I asked this week Were written while I was high This is hell I know you have Jeff and on the line One, two You know what to do next
4: A little nightmare music. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I guess it's too early to declare victory in the revolution. There's still a carceral system of control out there aimed mainly at controlling black people and keeping everyone in what has become a vast debtor class in line with threats of violence, imprisonment, and death. And, lest we forget, there's a pandemic going on. But in a 6-3 to decision, the SCOTUS has pronounced Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act a protection against discrimination according to sexual preference and gender identity. The reasoning of the judges in favor goes along the lines of my own when I used to daydream in my freshman year of high school about how the Constitution's protections could be broadened to cover more and more different flavors of people. If you're going to allow a man to marry a woman, but not allow a woman to marry a woman, that's sex discrimination now under Title VII. You can't fire a woman for marrying a woman because you couldn't fire a man for marrying a woman. This is a gross simplification of the reasoning, but it's the gist. And since transitioning genders is legal, those transitions, the choice to make them, and the people undergoing them fall under the same protections. I swear this is ripped straight out of my 8th grade imagination. That's how simple it is, and yet also how surprising it is, because in 8th grade, when I brought this reasoning before the Supreme Court in my mind, they were like, "Eh, nice try, kid. Very imaginative, though. The dissenting opinion was written by Justice Samuel Alito, who's just a lobe of dough pinched off of the late great loaf that was Antonin Scalia. And that opinion is pathetic. Alito supplies definitions of the word sex from three prominent dictionaries. His point is to circumscribe the word sex as the biological quality of being either male or female, which means Title VII only prevents discrimination based on sex, there being two. So if a man makes a dollar and a woman makes 70 cents, that's covered. But if a man is fired for exhibiting traits outside the confinements of what society judges as sex to be, that's not necessarily covered. For example, if he starts wearing red lipstick and is fired for that, according to Alito, he's not covered because lipstick isn't mentioned in the dictionary under sex. Yet lipstick is clearly something the hypothetical company in question would have no problem with if the employee were a woman. Alito goes on to complain that the authors of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 had nothing about gender behaviors and rigid prescriptions thereof in mind when they wrote it. He's shy about allowing that sex and gender are interwoven. He says the authors couldn't have meant Title VII to cover sexual preference, but what we call queerness today, and what has always been queerness, is only ever objectionable to the society at large if the behaviors it evinces run afoul of what the society has circumscribed within the boundary labeled NORMAL. That's exactly what sex discrimination is, the disallowing or punishing of a behavior because it is not tolerated within the sex one is assigned. And since biological sex can't really be known in a social setting, only surmised we really are talking about gender. We're not examining people's chromosomes and then consulting the dictionary. We're looking at people as their projected identity and judging them according to our expectations of what we think their performances in daily life signify. And Title Seven says, we shouldn't be imposing our personal expectations of what we think someone else's sex is onto that person's rights to make free and legal choices. I agree with Alito that the majority decision follows Title VII into territory the authors hadn't anticipated... That's what legal interpretation is for. It doesn't mean the judges are amending the law or stepping on the toes of the legislative branch. There's clearly discrimination going on in the cases discussed based on limits of gendered behavior that are presumed to be traditional or natural. Kavanaugh adds his voice at the end to agree with Alito, the lobe, that the majority justices are overstepping their purview. They're legislating. They're amending. That's a job of Congress. Well, I'm sorry you guys feel that way. But as we all know, starting an essay with Webster's defines such and such as blah 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 is a surefire way to lose your audience. We're not playing Scrabble. We're trying to discuss people's real-world problems over here. Inapplicable and restrictive expectations are what led to the current uprising, you three sad, dissenting men of SCOTUS. Cops... Karens, and the KKK weaponizing their expectations of what black people should be allowed to do or say on pain of death is what I gather we're standing up against, or- black people are standing up against what they're sick of and tired of being sick and tired of uh and why it's a rebellion reaching out beyond white privilege to unmask authority privilege and wealth privilege revealing them as the violent social prisons they are the same intractable nature of the prison industrial complex holds imperialism and capitalism in place Non-black allies can at the very least sympathize with the impossible reality black people are rising up against, not just intellectually, but viscerally, because it's the same limits and presumptions that keep us all trapped, taken to its life-destroying extreme. The same shock Jews in Germany write about feeling when they found their neighbors had turned into their violent oppressors overnight. That's what black people are talking about when they say a simple walk home from class or a jog on the street can suddenly turn into their worst nightmares. And just imagine living with that relationship with society for 400 years. I think we can all imagine ways our life can become nightmarish, even if we're not in the vulnerable position of being black in a violently anti-black culture. We're living the little nightmares, and we tolerate them. We tolerate millions of people going homeless, hungry, undereducated, and ill, so 40 people can have the possibility to own a fleet of solid gold private jets. I mean... At least we have some standards. Can you imagine if people were treated this horrifically and nobody got to own a single solid gold private jet? we sure look like idiots then, huh? Can you imagine if we were letting police kill and imprison this many black people and nobody got to have a fleet of classic cars or own their own private zoo? That would be like the Egyptians having enslaved people and extorted their farmers' crops without providing giant pointy, treasure-filled mausoleums for their dead kings? Imagine homeless people sleeping in tent villages in underpasses on the highway, but with no one able to launch their own car into outer space? I'm not sure if it would be better or worse, though. Is it better to have more people locked in prison than any other country in the world and have obscene privilege for the very few, or no privilege? Or a modicum of privilege? Is it better to have imperialism with spoils or without? It sure seems that if you're going to go to all the trouble to ruin people's lives, destroy their homes, and make them miserable and dead, you should at least be able to have some beautiful, shiny buildings. Otherwise, what's it all for? Then again, is it worth it? Is it worth it having a large hadron collider while people are having their lives destroyed? Or simply being deprived of opportunity. Is, is that the bargain we made? Sure, it's okay to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people in wars all around the world as long as 8,000 scientists get to work on experiments at CERN. Better than killing hundreds of thousands of innocent people in wars all around the world and those 8,000 scientists being killed too, I guess? Both scenarios are nightmarish, really. One looks like a devil's bargain... They're like a plain old raw deal. The fact is, we didn't decide. It's all traditional, the little nightmares and the big ones. The situations today were prepared yesterday, before we got here, and a lot of them will still be here when we're gone. But the least we can do is try to open imaginations to broader, saner, kinder possibilities. The rigidity of mental habits of the past is paradoxically the enemy's least vulnerable and most vulnerable weapon it can protect the status quo protect it stubbornly and violently but it can also be altered by nothing more than a novel more genuine generous interpretation of the rules you never know what you're going to end up with you never really end up do you it just keeps going this has been the moment of truth Good day.
1: <laughs> Did you have to get your Tic Tacs there, or what was going on? I had to drag my uh, <laughs> headphones
4: up from the uh, from the floor. Oh,
1: okay, I just <laughs> the sound was very odd. I was like, is he getting a Pez out? What is he up to over there? All yeah. right, Jeffy. All right, what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomie people, This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what are you bringing to the autonomous zone? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can get your own This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail, which is, again, what are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have it now as we are about to announce the winner of this week's question from hell, as well as all of the rest of the answers. Alex. How are the rest of our listeners answering this week's question from Hell?
2: Oh, I just wanted to uh, f- uh, error correct something from the monologue, actually. <laughs> uh, Land Lakes has dropped the Butter Maiden. I oh, they have. The, the Butter Maiden. They have. Yes, uh, that was like this week. And then also Uncle Ben uh, has promised to evolve. Yes, I, I whatever, saw that. Whatever that means. I saw that. <laughs> okay, so uh, this week's question <laughs> well, from Hell is... The Land Lakes lady is free. Uh, Land, uh, the question from Hell is... What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? What are you bringing to the Autonomous Zone? Braden S. says, my unsolicited opinions. Zoe H. says, I keep planning on bringing my spare newspapers by the end of my route, but I'm always so stinking tired and not sure if showing up at 7 a.m. is really the best time to bug
1: them. Wow.
2: And then... Uh, Remember when
1: newspaper routes were just for kids? I,
2: yeah, I had a gig newspaper route when I was a kid. It was terrible. It was awful. Uh, LC says, some critical support, and then I'm going to smooth out those bad attitudes with some weed. <laughs> Sean O. says, what am I bring to the Autonomous Zone? Gideon Bibles for every tent. <laughs> Time is short says, my bad self and a copy of Hakeem Bey's book for a refresher. And finally, uh, Dan B. says, you know, we know Dan B. Uh, says, a Russiagate conspiracy theory.
1: No, that's very nice well, of I haven't him. seen one of those in a while. No, I haven't either. Uh, actually, you can watch them on Fox News <laughs> In reverse, it's actually pretty entertaining. My answer to this week's question from Mel, By the way, I saw Donald Trump on Sean Hannity last night. You know what he said about the virus? It's just going to go away. And it was not a repeat from an episode well, eventually, in February. Eventually, he's going to be right. Yeah, eventually, he will be right. My answer to this week's question from Mel, What are you bringing to the autonomous zone? Pessimism, defeatism, a sense that anything good is fleeting and in the inevitable. Brute force will be so victorious those who survive will deny the violence ever occurred and insist it no longer exists, returning to where we were before George Floyd was murdered. in deep denialism of our complicity in a long history of killings of the poor and people of color by police in order to maintain capitalism. So nothing good, really, to be honest. You probably don't want me anywhere near an Autonomous Zone, which is too bad because I'd really like to check it out, but I would be a huge buzzkill. The answers I liked most this week were Gorilla Gramophonics saying that they were bringing to the Autonomous Zone Robert's Rules of Order, and a gavel. Oh, and a wig. I really like that. Luke saying preconceived notions. Kim saying the antibodies. Shane saying armed guards decree declaring. Senor Juan Gerardo Guido Marquez, the interim president. Rob saying bootstraps for everyone so we can really get this thing off the ground. Dan saying what I bring everywhere else, a persistent sense of personal inadequacy and Benedict saying ideological baggage. So any particular ones really jump out at you, Alex? Uh,
2: I liked personal uh, in, uh, personal inadequacy, and I'm always a fan of a timely Guaido thing as long as you uh, can still be using those quotes.
1: Yeah, let's go with Shane and his <laughs> suggestion of bringing to the autonomous zone armed guards and a decree declaring Senor Juan Gerardo Guaido Marquez the interim president of the United States. So congratulations to you, Shane. Send us your mailing address via Facebook. And we will have a This Is Hell medical face mask sent to you as soon as possible. And if anybody else who is listening wants a This Is Hell medical face mask or any of our merchandise, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support where you can also subscribe to the Patreon podcast and just do good stuff for us because we're pretty good. Alex, who's on the show next week, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. I know on Monday's show, I'll be starting off uh, by talking about how the corporate news media, uh, how they just seem to be the last institution the last people in the United States to find out that there is racism in the United States, institutional racism in the United States. This is breaking news for the media, so I'll be discussing that on Monday. Who is on the show next week, Alex? I
2: only got one-person booked for, uh, yet. for That's for Tuesday, so Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, stay tuned. I'll be posting When We Book People on uh, Facebook and Twitter. But for Tuesday, we're real excited about this. We're going to be talking with legal scholar Aya Gruber about her book The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation – in mass incarceration.
1: Thanks to this week's guests, African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Go to our website and search on Cedric and you can not only find that in that interview but as well as an interview that we did with him back in 2019, which was the most downloaded interview of the year. Thanks to historian Eugene McCarraher, author of The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Reli- Religion of Modernity. And that was an exceptional conversation. You should go back and definitely listen to that. That, again, is at thisishell.com. We also spoke this week with housing activists Richard Hunsinger and Nathan Eisenberg, who co wrote the Cosmonaut article, Mask Off Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic. This was Richard's second appearance on the show, so you can find an interview that we did with him last year as well by searching on Hunsinger. And finally, thanks to this week's guests, Max Rameau and Netfa Freeman, co authors of the Black Agenda Report article, Community Control. Versus defunding the police This week's hangover cure was white willow bark Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Jeff Dortchum for delivering the moment of truth. Always thanks to Ronaldo, Theron and Richard for all of their work on the show. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. But No. <laughs> my demon is on
4: my butt. No. <laughs> uh, my demon talks to me a profanity like a seller.
1: Mm-hmm. And my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put Bugs. me on a hell right.